want you to remember that the book of John is called the book of signs or miracles. The first 12 chapters, Jesus addressed uh, the public. Uh, He had a big audience to address. But from chapter 13 all the way through 17, uh, we're right on the precipice of the hour of crucifixion. Uh, in which the last and greatest sign will be given to them, and that is the sign of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Um, This whole story begins in chapter 13 in the upper room, uh, the final meal that they're having together. And if your Bible is anything like mine and you have red letters in yours, I'm looking at mine now, it's all red. Jesus is speaking to his uh, 11 disciples, Judas has left uh, to make his deal uh, with, with the devil. And so now Jesus is talking and he's talking to them about growing a healthy harvest. And one thing about Jesus teaching and preaching, he loved to do it telling stories uh, because that's what people understand. Uh, this was an agricultural area, uh, plenty of planting and reaping going on. And so here he uses the metaphor of um, the grapevine. And we want to begin reading in verse number 9 this morning. John 15, 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. The little word abide there is the key word. Uh, it's used so many times throughout this uh, section. It, uh, it's the Greek word meno means to remain, to continue, uh, stay close to me, keep connected. Even though I'm going away, there's a way that you can connect with me. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Now that's interesting. One of the ways in which you and I stay close to Christ is by keeping his commandments. When we keep his commandments, I'll tell you, it's automatic. We because uh, the commandments keep us close to Christ, because that's, he tells us to, to stay that, to, to operate in that modus operandi. Uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you. It's interesting. Uh, here he mentions his joy. Uh, He wants his joy to remain in you and me, that your joy may be full. In other words, I want you to be a joyful person. Uh, I want you to have the joy that comes from God. The joy of the world doesn't last very long, does it? Uh, But the joy that God gives lasts for a long, long time because it's his product. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Now, Jesus is raising the bar right here on the subject of love. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, and no longer do I call you servants. But a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Uh, For all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Uh, You did not choose me, but um, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask... uh, The Father in my name, he will give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. You see, he keeps coming back to that. Uh, Because love is the basis of the church. Love is the basis of 
our Christian experience, everything flows out of, of, of love. Um, if the world hates you, you will know that it hates, hated me before it hated you. Uh, and then last, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world. Uh, in other words, Jesus said, listen, you are otherworldly. You're not of this world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that's pretty stern language right there for his disciples. Um, Jesus here is explaining to us that he's the new vine. Remember uh, in our previous studies we found that the, that the grapevine was a symbol of the nation of Israel. And when you go back in the book of Isaiah, you'll find that uh, God meticulously planted the grapevine uh, in, the, in the ground and the tentacles were going out all over the place. But the nation of Israel failed God and uh, the Lord removed the hedge away from the grapevine. He stopped working it and uh, the grapevine produced wild grapes. If you've ever tried to eat one of them, it's not good. And so God then just let the grapevine, that's Israel, grow wild to its own devices. He stopped taking care of it and it didn't produce the kind of fruit that God wanted and God was really disappointed with the nation of Israel. So uh, here he talks about a new harvest. Uh, a new harvest like uh, they have never seen before. Uh, you know, they struggled. Just read the Old Testament and see how they struggled with all of this. And if you remember last week's message, we, uh, just, to, just to review just a little bit, remember I said that Jesus, in verse number one, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And in other words, what he's saying is things are going to be different now. I'm the genuine vine. The time, this time the vine will not fail. Look at me. I am the vine. I am the source of this harvest. Second thing he said is the father is the gardener. He's always been the gardener. We get a preview of his work back in the book of Isaiah. Uh, he said, listen, I'm going to punish the vineyard. I'm not going to prune the vineyard. Uh, and you know, the vineyard, when it isn't pruned, becomes unproductive. And when you and I are not pruned, we become unproductive too. The Lord has to work us over with his pruning shears. And uh, many of us have been through that for quite a long time in our life. Well, uh, back in Isaiah, he stopped pruning the, the, the vine, uh, the protective wall came down, and the ground became waste, a wasteland. It sounds a whole lot like the branch that does not bear fruit he takes away. Uh, remember, Jesus is the vine, the Father is the gardener, and we are the branches. Uh, Dr. Oswald Sanders said one time this, each of us are as close to God as we choose to be. That's a, a very pointed statement. Each of us are as close to God as we choose to be. I want you to apply that to your life today, and, and uh, I'll apply it to mine. Fruit bearing is a choice. Uh, being a productive Christian is a choice. Uh, it's not something you fall into. It's something you decide into. You decide to follow the Lord. You decide to grow in Christ. You decide uh, to be the person God wants you to be. And uh, here in the Bible, he explains the process that he expects of you. You know, whenever the Lord plants the vine, he has some expectations. He has ex expectations for you and me. Look at verse number two. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
uh, here we find the word fruit. When uh, we are first born of the Spirit, we are born out of the vine. We like pop out of the side of the vine. There we are. Uh, life dawns on us. And, uh, and not after a long period of time, we begin, people begin to see some different fruit in our life that they like. Some people like it. We like it because that's what we want. We've decided to be a fruit bearer. Uh, and so in verse number two, we have fruit. And then look, look what else. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it will, be, it will bear more fruit. That's the next thing. Uh, the Lord says, listen, I'm happy with your fruit, but I want more. Isn't, doesn't that just sound like the gardener? Uh, the gardener plants his flower and he says, listen, that's, that's great, but I want some more. Uh, my goal is more. And so here in verse number two, we have fruit, we have more fruit. And then look at verse number five. I am the vine and you're the branches and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's the next step up. So I want you to put yourself against this paradigm this morning. Whenever you were born of the vine, you came popping out of the vine. There you were on the world scene and you became a little branch. Uh, it wasn't too long in that first year that you began to bear some fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, um, things of that nature. They're, they actually are the attributes of God. God is trying to reproduce himself in this world as best he can through you. And so you begin to bear some fruit, and then in the second year of your Christian experience, you bear more fruit, and then, and then after a while, you, uh, you bear a lot of fruit, and that's good, and that's exactly what the Lord wants from you and me. But I want you to notice verse 16. Look over there. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Uh, that's what God's appointment is for you. Listen, you go bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. Now that's interesting. That's the, final, that's the final mark right there. That's the final goal that God has for you. That your fruit should remain. That means that you become a lasting fruit bearer. You keep on bearing much fruit. Continually producing till the day of your death. A lifetime enlistment to be a fruit bearer. You might say, how long do I have to live the Christian life? Well, that depends on how long you live. If you live a long life, that means you live the Christian life all the way up to the end. Uh, I remember hear the, hearing the story about um, uh, the, the founder of Word of Life Bible Institute, Jack Wurtzen. Uh, Jack Wurtzen, that's all he ever thought about is spiritual fruit. I mean, I don't think he had any other subject that he dealt with. And he built that Bible Institute up there in Screen Lake, New York. And I heard about when he was dying on his deathbed and he was telling some of his associates that had come to see him. He says, I don't think the doctor's saved. Fruit bearing was still on his mind. He was checking out. He says, listen, I think I'll, you'll win the doctor to God, Okay. Well, that's what I think this verse means. I, I've studied this out. Fruit that remains all the way until the end. A lifetime enlistment. That's what you're in for when you become a Christian. How many people here remember when you enlisted into the armed forces of our country? Would you raise your hand when you, if you remember that? Okay, quite a few. Uh, kind of impactful, right? 
I was 17 years of age. I wanted to get away from home, and my dad was more eager than I to get rid of me. So I brought that form home, and he had to sign it. He had to give me permission to join the Serva Air Force. I was 17. He grabbed that form out of my hand and put his name on it before I changed my mind. And I remember I took it downtown Pittsburgh, and we met there in the, a building downtown, and we had all these guys packed in the room, and he said, okay, now let's stand. And uh, I felt kind of strange. And they said, now raise your right hand. I felt stranger. And we repeated, I forget what we repeated, but it really meant you're in it for four years. That's what it meant. I enlisted for four years. They took us out to the old Allegheny Airport out here, put us on an old C-47 that was like a, a flying piece of junk. And, uh, and we made our way all the way to San Antonio, Texas. And in the even, uh, that night, we landed somehow in San Antonio, Texas. One of the guys from New York said, listen, he was looking out the plane. He said, I've never seen a cow before. <laughs> They'd never seen a cow. So they, they got us out of that airplane, and they opened the door, and all this hot air hit us in the face. And I thought, what have I done? What have I done? Well, you know, I, I, I fulfilled my commitment four years. But when you get to the end of your term, they, there's a name they call you, and it's called a short timer. And, and they let you kind of like cut corners. You don't have to do too much. You know, you, you don't have to be so, uh, so, so uh, perfect in all the things you did, a short timer. Well, I'm here today to tell you that as a Christian, you never get to experience that. Uh, God doesn't want any of us to be short timers. We're all in it for life, all in it for the long haul. And uh, I want to be just like Jack Wurtzen. I think the doctor needs Christ as his savior. Well, a good crop of fruit doesn't come overnight. Some of us are learning so much now, it surprises us. And uh, Jesus expressed this in different ways in the Bible. And one of the ways that he expresses it is Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Let's read this together. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Um, And so he wants you to bear fruit. He wants more fruit. He wants much fruit. And he wants fruit to the end of your life. He wants you to serve Jesus all the way to the end. Um, he's also talking to these disciples here about a new lifestyle, His, our relationship to God and other people. What does fruit do? What does that mean? That means we become a person of prayer. Look at verse number seven. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it should be done for you. Now, what you have to do is understand uh, Psalm 37.4, in order to get the full impact of that. Let's read this together. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, whenever we delight ourselves in the Lord, you know what God does to us? He changes the desires of our heart. As we grow up in Christ, we become hopefully more spiritual and uh, hopefully less carnal and less worldly, and less into the program 
of the world and more into the program of God. And so what happened is when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he changes the desires of his heart. And then, and then we claim this verse in verse number seven, which we, which we just read. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, your sanctified desires, if you will, and it shall be done for you. Uh, we are people of prayer. And in verse number 10, we are people of obedience. Uh, uh, William Borden, we're going to hear from him at the end of the service, a little video clip. Uh, uh, He had this saying, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. That was the motto of his life. No to yourself, yes to Jesus every time. And uh, we'll get the impact at the end of the service. Uh, another thing he called these, this new lifestyle was a lifestyle of joy. Verse number 11. Let's look at this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. He talks about his joy and our joy. You know, I think oftentimes when people think of God, they think of this big mean ogre up there in heaven just growling at everybody, you know. And I think sometimes he really does growl at everybody. Uh, but there's also, uh, there, is so many, there is so many attributes and facets to the character of God. Uh, and uh, one of which is joy. And I don't think that's depicted too often because we think that might, might be a little trivial or superficial. But, but here Jesus said, listen, I have joy. And I want you to have this joy, too, that I have. Joy, you know, there's joy in doing the right thing. You know that? And when a person comes to Christ, God gives them the power to do, do the right thing. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Uh, a gloomy Christian. A joyful Christian is the correct term. Uh, you, we are sinners, and that makes us glum, doesn't it? But we're saved, and that makes us glad. And so there might have been a period of time before we came to Christ that we were really down on the ground, and that's a good thing. And then when God picked us up, that's a better thing. And so it makes us glad. Uh, your joy, he refers to. Uh, again, let me take you back to my Air Force days. Uh, whenever I landed in uh, Texas... And uh, started attending a church, just like this church, where the pastor opened the Bible and taught us from the scriptures and encouraged us to read the Bible. I began to grow in the Lord, and one of the things I wanted to do was be a witness for Christ. Witnessing, that was my thing. And so me and my buddy, we were out on the Air Force Base, Perrin Air Force Base, which is between Denison and Sherman, Texas, north, north of Dallas. Uh, we were walking, uh, and we were, there was a group of people over there, and we went in there just like a lion, a, uh, a lamb to the slaughter. And so we started telling them about Jesus, hey, why don't you come to church with us? And all the, we were giving them all this routine, and they were just kind of listening pretty nice to us, and, and I, didn't felt like, I didn't feel like we were getting very far with them. And so we started to walk away, and I heard one guy say some, something really like derogatory about us, like, oh, those crazy nuts. And I thought, oh, that's really good. That's good. Uh, that gave me just a little piece, a small inkling 
of uh, what the disciples started to go through when they began to witness for Christ. And the verse of scripture that popped into my mind was Acts 5.41. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were able to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced. Now listen, they were beaten and they were commanded not to speak the name of Jesus. And after their beating, they said, listen, this is a privilege that we're able to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Amen. And so they had joy. And so this joy of which I speak this morning is not connected with circumstances. That's happiness, not joy. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, the Bible says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, so you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering. This is interesting. These people were suffering severely, but they were filled with joy. You know, one of the things that we always hear from people who return from the mission field, those people have nothing, but they have the joy of God. And so what we have in our circumstances are not connected with God's real joy. 1 Peter 1, 8, you love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him, you trust him, and even now you are happy with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Now, I have to be totally, completely honest with you this morning that sometimes I get in this condition, inexpressible joy. I'm saying to myself, man, this is really good. It's the joy of the Lord. John 17, 13, and now I'm coming to you, Jesus is praying, and he says, I've told them many things while I was with them, so they would be filled with my joy. And so God wants you to be a joyful Christian, and, and it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's not something that you conjure up and hang out with somebody who has a pleasing personality, tries to lift you up. It's something that comes from in your heart. It's the fruit of the Spirit being a joyful Christian. Jesus does not call Christians to a dull existence of being hated by the world, obeying commandments, and waiting to go to heaven. Instead, he offers us fullness of joy. Uh, nothing else in the entire world can bring the joy that we find in serving Jesus, abiding in him, uh, obeying Christ. Another thing that we're called to is uh, a loving lifestyle, a love toward others. And you'll remember, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, I talked to you about John 13, 34. Jesus said, listen, I have a new commandment for you. And the new commandment is, you have to love each other like I love you. Oh, that's heavy, isn't it? Jesus raised the bar on love. Uh, but, and it couldn't have come at a better time, all this information that Jesus is giving here on love, because that very night the disciples were arguing about who was becoming the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that? And he says, now listen, guys, settle down. You've got to love each other. They were like maneuvering, pulling strings, working the angles. Uh, can, now the question arises, and this is the question, can true love be commanded? Uh, it can be. And it is in the Bible. It's a command of God. A true spiritual love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. I'll tell you what, if you wait to love because of the feelings, it's, you've got a long wait. Uh, it's an act of the will. It's something you do. Uh, Christian love is commanded. It's a decision. 
Uh, and in James, it's called the royal law. Uh, and, uh, and whenever we do that, it, sh it has proof. It's just not words. It's, it's just not going around saying, oh, I love you, I love you, God bless you, God, uh, peace be to you. It proves itself in action. And the highest expression of love was what Jesus did for you and me. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that the greatest? Sure it is. Uh, that's the highest expression of love. Dying for a friend is rare. Dying for an enemy is unheard of. Well, who wrote the book on love? God did. I love 1 John 4, 10. I think we have that. Let's read this together. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Uh, he says, listen, don't, don't pat yourself on the back because you think you have love. Real love is God loving you. And God giving himself for you, that's the definition of real love. And so the Lord wants you and me to go out, whether we, listen to me, whether we feel like it or not. Isn't that too true of a good marriage? Somebody says, boy, I really love this person. I can't wait to get married. And then after two weeks, they say, you know what? I don't even like this person. How did this happen? You know, uh, true love is loving out of a decision. It's a commitment, right? And so here, the, Jesus said, listen, I want you to love your Christian brothers in the church. And uh, I want you to... Uh, to act sacrificially to them. We don't have to feel like doing that. We just need to do it. Helping, encouraging self-denials. And then he says one other thing here. Uh, look down to verse number 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. This new community uh, creates new friendships. Uh, intimacy, friends. You know, people have many acquaintances, but few friends. You know that? Uh, Jesus said, listen, I don't want to call you a servant anymore. Now, listen, remember, that was, a, that was a, a, a term of high esteem. Because when you study the Bible, the greatest servants of the, the greatest Christians, the greatest followers of God, first of all, said, listen, I just want to be known as a servant of God. That's what I want to be known by. But he says, listen, I have a new, a new designation I want to lay on you. I want you now to be my friend. And what that means is I'm going to have a new intimacy for you. Uh, I'm going to tell you what's going on. And then, and then we have the relationship to the world. Now, we've talked most of all this morning about the good news. And boy, who wouldn't want to be able to pray and get our prayers answered? Uh, to be able to have new friends. Uh, to be able to have joy. To be able to experience love and give it. And that's all good, right? And we're all going, yeah, yeah, right, right. And then he says, now this is the bad news. You're going to be hated when you go into the world. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you will know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, that's what we're in for. The world will hate us. Uh, and all over our world today, there is so much hatred of Christians. Have you noticed it recently? 
Uh, the Coptic Christians in Egypt were killed. They were demonstrating. Uh, the uh, government of Egypt opened up on them and killed 25 of them, at least 25 and injured 300 of them. And all around the world, there is a war against Christianity. The world hates the Christian. Now, in our country, our country was, was built and founded upon Christian principles, and, uh, but we're moving in an anti-Christian way in America, aren't we? We sure are. Uh, but around the world, there is a war on Christianity. Newsweek magazine, just a week or so, came out on their front page. They talked about a global war on Christians from the Muslim world. And uh, they gave a lot of uh, information about that. Now, you and I may never, we're for sure we're going to be hated. We may not have to give our life like the Coptic Christians over in Egypt. But for sure, God wants us all to give our life as a living sacrifice, okay? You remember what Paul said. Um, I want you to give your life to me as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Uh, a living sacrifice. Uh, Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I was reading about William Borden. Uh, William Borden is a great example of a man who gave his life to God as a living sacrifice. Uh, William Borden, uh, the, wor the word... The Borden name, as some of you are familiar with, uh, they, uh, they were part of the Borden Dairy millionaires of many, many years ago. Uh, William Borden, uh, when he graduated from high school, his, his mother won him to Christ, took him to the Moody Church in Chicago, and he get, came to Christ. When he graduated from high school, his parents gave him as a graduation gift a trip around the world. And I was traveling around the world, he wrote home, and he said, I have a desire to be a missionary. Well, that didn't go over very good with his parents because they had great plans for him in the family business. Uh, one friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing away his life to be a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. And what he did is he turned his back on the family fortune. No reserves. He wrote it in the back of his Bible. Well, he, was, uh, he went to Yale University. During his college years, uh, he uh, made an entry in his personal journal, which I mentioned earlier, and it said this, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Uh, he was an inspiration at Yale um, in his first year, he gathered a person together and he said, let's have a prayer meeting. And then another person came together. And after his first year at Yale, they had 150 people in his prayer and Bible study group. When he became a senior, they had 1,000. And Yale only had 1,300 students. They had 1,000 in their prayer and Bible study groups. Um, well, they would go around and they would uh, hold each other accountable for their friends to bring them to Christ. And every time there was somebody that the, a name came up, it was real hard. He said, give that person to me. He took all the hard cases. And so uh, they turned Yale upside down for Christ. 
But in his heart, he wanted to be a missionary to the Muslims in China. Uh, upon graduation, uh, Borden turned down high-paying jobs. And in the back of, a, of the Bible, he wrote two more words. It, it said, no retreat. No retreat. Well, uh, he decided on his way to China to go to Egypt to study Arabic. He was 25 years old. Uh, he gave away his wealth, but not himself. But in four weeks in Egypt, he died of spinal meningitis. But right before he died, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. If you go to Cairo, Egypt today, you can find his grave. It's, uh, it's hard to find. It's, uh, it's where they bury Americans in Egypt. Uh, and on the epitaph on his tombstone, one of the last things that are mentioned is this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation. You can get in your car and you can go to the uh, Cairo Museum and see all the gold of King Tut, which he amassed to take wherever he was going, but to his utter surprise, it didn't go with him. Uh, William Borden sent everything he had ahead. Now, Jesus said, listen, I have a new lifestyle for you. And uh, you're going to be hated by the world if you do it right. And uh, they're coming after you. Now, we may not have to experience that, but God wants, wants us to lay our life down as a living sacrifice. And every time I read those last three things that he wrote in his Bible, it challenges me. No reserves. That means I turn my back on my family fortune. I'm not in it for that. No retreats. I'm never going back. And at the end, when disappointment loomed, he said, no regrets. Wow. I don't know, what, I don't know if that speaks to you. It speaks to me. That's what I want. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, um, I'd like to ask you where you are today. How's your, the fruit in your life? You know, I think it's easy to ride along, ride the wave of the church, uh, just do the same thing you did last year. Uh, listen, I appeal to you, break that habit, please. Uh, Christ wants more, that he expects more than that from you. He gave his life upon the cross so that you could have eternal life. And then he says, listen, I want you now to give me your life. Put your hand on the plow and don't turn back. I not, I, I not only want some little fruit from you, I want a lot of fruit from you. And I want it the rest of your life, all the way up until the day you die. Uh, that's a small price that you could give because of the gift that he's given to you on the cross. And so I appeal to you today. Let God shake up your world. Um, let uh, the inspiration of William Borden touch your heart.
Dear Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the messages that, that are here in the book of John. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit, fruit that remains all the way to the end. We pray that you'll help us to apply this truth to our life today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.